Father, be gracious to us now as we uh, hear and wrestle and respond uh, to your word. God, by your spirit, uh, stir our hearts and our minds and our affections. That we would make much of Jesus. In his name we pray. Amen. <clears throat> Robots are writing poetry. And many people can't tell the difference. This is an article that, that marvels at the ability of, of artificial intelligence, of AI, to analyze seemingly endless data to write compelling poetry. But ultimately, it exposes the limitations of AI. Ultimately, that a robot is not human. The author of this article writes, My point is that a computer will never replicate what poets do unless it can also replicate why they do it. Machines that write do so like machines. Their poems are, by, are statistical byproducts of having absorbed vast strata of ready-made data no human mind will ever contain. But how do you confer knowledge of mortality? There is no computational shortcut for that. Compressed into Robert Frost's language was a lifetime's insight on loss. This is why poetry, unlike so much else our species has mastered, cannot be copied. It's an artifact of introspection that can be mastered only by our species. There is no superhuman way to write poetry because we write poems by virtue of being what a computer isn't. And that is human. The effect of poetry and in, in, in art in general is its, its, its ability to wrestle with the complexity and beauty of our humanity. From joy and sorrow, from suffering and longing, a poet writes something that resonates with us because we understand it, not in a computational way, but in an emotional way, in an experiential way. And when we consider our emotions in the context of our Christian faith, perhaps our emotions often get stuck in a kind of algorithm that favors positivity and continues to bury anything resembling fear or anxiety or distrust or despair. In the face of suffering, we can defer to a kind of robotic language that, that slowly becomes less human because it fails to acknowledge the disorientation in our lives and the disorientation around us. Well, the language of lamentation teaches us how to be human. It's how we bring our sorrow to God. It is how we move from heartbreak to hope. It is how we remember who God is and what He has secured for us. It is the language of holy desperation. A friend of mine earlier this week in conversation said to me, you know, it's strange what we let ourselves believe. Well, I hope this morning that we'll see that, that, that God gives us a lot of space to wrestle and to cry out, and that even there we are refined and we remember who He is. So we're going to begin with uh, reading Psalm 13, which will be up here. 
How long, O Lord, will you forget me forever? How long will you hide your face from me? How long must I take counsel in my soul and have sorrow in my heart all the day? How long shall my enemy be exalted over me? Consider and answer me, O Lord my God. Light up my eyes, lest I sleep the sleep of death. Lest my enemies say I have prevailed over him. Lest my foes rejoice because I am shaken. But I have trusted in your steadfast love. My heart shall rejoice in your salvation. I will sing to the Lord because he has dealt bountifully with me. The word of the Lord. I think we can look at this poem uh, in three parts, and it's, it's kind of separated very clearly for us. In the first two verses, we see very clearly uh, the psalmist's pain. In verses 3 and 4, that from that pain, he offers a prayer, a plea. And then at the end, those things ultimately lead him into praise. I think our tendency can often be to quickly jump to verses 5 and 6. Because again, there's something uneasy about the language of these earliest, earlier verses. But there's a progression here. A movement that leads us out of sorrow and into the safety of God's covenant love. But there's something about uh, the psalmist having to work through verses 1-4 through four to get to 5 and 6. <clears throat> Well, our psalmist here is, is King David. And notice that he cries out, How long? Four times. A repetition that is not lost on us and one that emphasizes the pain he feels. And while we don't know the, the, the reason for his sorrow, some think it's, it refers to his relationship with Saul. Others think it refers to his relationship with his own son, Absalom. Or some think that it's just this general feeling of, of death, this impending death. Regardless, we can sense the weight of abandonment and of despair. Uh, my family just returned uh, from a place called Camp Braveheart. Uh, for a number of years, we've been serving there. It's a grief camp uh, for kids uh, who have lost a loved one. And you have kids anywhere from eight years old uh, to 18 years old. And you have kids bringing a lot of sadness, a lot of confusion, a lot of anger, a lot of questions about God to the table. And the beautiful thing about this camp is that it gives them space to wrestle with all these things. It doesn't invite them in and to say, gosh, we're so sorry. That's so sad. But I want you to know that God's in control. Have a great week. While that is true, God is, control, is in, in control, and as we just said in, the, in, the, in this catechism, that He works all things toward our salvation. There is a place for them to cry. There is a place for them to be angry. There is a place for them to ask hard questions. And consider our community. Consider those in this room. Think about all, all the pain that, that we carry and that we bear. You have depression, anxiety, thoughts of suicide, 
cancer, miscarriage, infertility. The list is long. What are we to do with all of that? Are we to bury it? Are we to pretend it's okay? Or are we to smother it with empty sentiment? I don't think so. I think we see in in Psalm 13, which is in the Bible, that there is a place for us as God's people to cry out, how long? But it's not a place we're intended to stay. So his pain leads him into a place of prayer. David's disorientation does not lead him to cynicism or or utter despair, but to a simple plea. Consider and answer me, O Lord my God. This posture of prayer is, is one of dependence, of need. It's a movement from absence, the sense of absence, to a growing sense of presence. And I know prayer for us, for me, can often feel too daunting. Especially when we feel the weight of how long. When we feel like, I don't even, I don't even have the words. I, I'm almost too tired to speak. But there comes a point when, when we have to lean in to find those words and to even simply ask, consider and answer me, oh my God. And I think as we establish this rhythm of prayer, we uncover what we, we knew to be true all along. And this crying out, this plea, this lament, I believe is an act of faith. Because it knows that God hears us. It knows that God sees us. When we consider verses 1 through 4, when we get to verses 5 through 6, it may seem a bit abrupt. But I think there's a very intentional shift here. I don't think it's something that David just stumbles into. I don't think it's a kind of a guilt-driven praise. Like, oh gosh, I've said a lot of tough things here. I think I need to slide in some good stuff because this is how I'm supposed to talk or this is what I'm supposed to say or this is what I'm supposed to sing. I think in his pain, in his plea, he is appealing to the God who has established an everlasting covenant with his people. A God who has carried them through countless how-longs. Even those how-longs that arose from a captivity that they caused. When we look in the book of Lamentations, there's a whole book in the Bible about lament. We see God's people grieving their sin. Grieving the consequences of it. And how does God respond? He says, The steadfast love of the Lord never ceases. His mercies never come to an end. Great is your faithfulness. And they say, The Lord is my portion. Therefore, I will hope in Him. In Israel's worship, 
Throughout Scripture, there is often a posture of, of remembering, of applying God's past deliverance to the present. And oftentimes, this remembrance points to a very specific event, uh, that of the Exodus, of God delivering His people from Egypt to establish them as His people created to find rest and safety in Him. What does it mean for us to be a remembering people? Now, there are certainly things that we can look back on uh, and say, man, God was really working there, or God put this person in my life. Those are certainly things we can look at and remember. But if we're going to take an event, I think we, uh, our Exodus event is the cross. Part of this, this camp that we were at, Camp Braveheart, a lot of the things that, that we do with these kids, it's very experiential. One thing we do is... Um, all these kids go down to the creek, and they all get 12 rocks. Um, you can always tell the kids who are there for the first year because they get the huge rocks to like try to prove themselves. Um, we're like, good luck. Um, and what they do is they take these rocks, and they write on each rock uh, the emotions of grief or their experiences. So on one rock, they'll write fear, and on another, they'll write shame and uh, guilt, anger, so on and so forth. Then they take these rocks and they put them in a backpack and then we, we hike deep into the woods silently and, we, and our, our destination is this, this wooden cross. And what's beautiful, at the, at the foot of this cross is a massive pile of rocks that has been accumulated over the last 15 years of this camp. And what these, these kids do is they come and they, they come around and one by one, they take a rock out of their bag and they toss it down at the foot of the cross. Grief. Doubt. Anger. But something I noticed this year that I've never noticed before, it was a, it was a group of like 10-year-old boys. And there were about four of them uh, sitting there. And one by one, they were going, Grief. Anger. I mean, and chucking these rocks hard. You know, some of it is they're 10, right? Um, but I, I began to think about that. And there was something really powerful about them feeling the freedom to throw those rocks hard at the foot of the cross. And that strangely, that, to me, that was a... Um, that was an illustration of praise. That they could throw their rocks anywhere, at anyone, and they, they're throwing them at the cross because they know that that's a place of surety, of safety, of deliverance. It was a reminder to me that there's something about passing through pain and prayer that gives life to our praise. But we don't journey uh, alone. When we consider the cross, we have one who leads the way, Jesus. This Jesus who wept when Lazarus died, this Jesus who wept over Jerusalem, this Jesus who wept in the garden, feeling the weight of impending death on this cross, 
saying, Father, if you are willing, remove this cup from me. Nevertheless, not my will, but yours be done. And being in agony, Jesus prayed more earnestly. This Jesus who cried out on the cross, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Which is from Psalm 22, another lament. This lamenting Jesus who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross. And this joy is for us, for those who would receive Christ. For us who would hold fast to our confession and in confidence draw near to this throne of grace where we receive mercy, where we find grace in time of need. Blessed are those who mourn, for they will be comforted. So what do we, what do, we do with all this? It feels kind of overwhelming. Well, I, I think we learn the language, and we learn by doing. And it could be as simple as taking Psalm 13 and saying, hey, I'm going I'm to commit to memorizing these six verses. And in those moments where you're feeling the weight of whatever it is, you can just pull that out. And it may just be that you read it out loud. Or you pause at certain places. God's given you the language. You don't have to come up with something fresh and new. He's given you a template. He's given you the words to say. Let that guide you. Next, give people in your life space to do this. Be okay with just sitting with them when, when they have these questions, when they feel this weight. Don't just try to like push it out by just saying, oh, don't worry, God's in control. Again, He is. <laughs> but there's something about us sitting in that where we learn more about who He is and how good He is. It's good for us to do it together. We're going to have moments in our worship service where, where we will lament together. But again, it's not to wallow. It's to remember and it's to, to point to how we long for things to be. And, <clears throat> excuse me. Andy Squires, uh, he is a, a musician, writer. He writes that groaning is the sound of hope making its way out of the body. We live in this tension between the already and the not yet of God's kingdom. So of course we feel a bit disoriented. Of course we have it hardwired into us that this isn't how it's supposed to be. And so we groan, we grieve, but not as those without hope. Our how-longs will one day end. But for now, they uncover something of the beauty and faithfulness of Christ our Savior. Uh, Nicholas Wolterstorff. What a last name, huh? Wolterstorff. Um, I'll have the Wolterstorff, please. Medium rare. He wrote a short book called Lament for a Son, <clears throat> and it is both breathtaking and heartbreaking to read. Um, it's just a response to losing his son um, suddenly. 
And he's wrestling with this, this idea of um, hope in God and even just this longing for things to be made new. And he says this. This is amazing. I shall look at the world through tears. Perhaps I shall see things that dry-eyed I could not see. Well, we started out talking about robots. (laughs) Robot poets. Well, there there are people out there who, who are determined to make a new version of this this bot, this, this AI uh, poet. They promise that it's going to be 500 times more powerful, able to sort through even vaster amounts of data. It will shock us with even more uncanny ability to find just the right words and to arrange them artfully. Not a syllable will be wasted. But as long as the ability to write poetry remains a barrier for admission into the category of personhood, robots will stay robots. Against the onslaught of thinking machines, poetry is humanity's last and best stand. We are not robots. We are poets, fumbling through lamentation, clumsily holding on to a messy faith that remains intact because Jesus keeps it secure. Brothers and sisters, keep going. Our God is with us. Let me pray. Father, I thank you that you give us this language, and I thank you that um, it is a way for us to know you. Lord, would you draw us out of despair? Would you draw us out of cynicism and into a place where we are surprised by rest, we are surprised even by joy? Lord, we know that we can't do this uh, without Jesus. To lament is Christian. (laughs) So Lord, fix our eyes on Him. In Jesus' name, amen.